The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Thanks everyone for coming out. Uh, I'd like to welcome Henry back. Or is I think it's fourth or fifth time here, I'm not sure. Something like that. Something like that, yeah. And uh, Henry's talks are always well attended. I think everyone's interested in hearing his wisdom on how he's helping teach to um, integrating mindfulness and compassion and natural therapies with his work in psychiatry. And um, one of one of the results of that work is he's, um, about six years ago, he developed what's called the Resilience Training Program at uh, the Penny George Institute. And this is a program for people with uh, depression and anxiety. And it uses um, material from his books, Chemistry of Joy and, and Chemistry of Calm, and then his latest book, The Chemistry of Joy Workbook. And, uh, and it, it, it teaches a, a holistic approach to working with depression and anxiety. Um, I personally am glad to see Henry. I'm, I've benefited from his books and from his resilience training program. And it's always nice to see to see Henry and to, to be in his presence and also just to, to hear his wisdom. So Henry, thanks for coming tonight and we look forward to your talk. So, um, The topic tonight, as I think you know, I mentioned it during the meditation if you were listening, <laughs> um, is learning to love well. It's a topic that I've been kind of circling around for a while. Um, you know, I have basically two books out, Chemistry of Joy, you know, about how to work with mood, and Chemistry of Calm, about how to you know, create some greater equanimity or peace of mind. And I have an idea for one more book in the Chemistry of Trilogy. <laughs> I have to have a packaged set. And, and then I'm done with chemistry books. But, um, but the title that I've had in mind for a long time is The Chemistry of Connection. Now, my friends advised me that if I called it The Chemistry of Love, and put a little sexier picture on the front. <laughs> I might sell more books. It's not going to happen. But um, I am going to give you all a, a piece of advice to, at the beginning here. I don't actually like to give advice very often, but I am going to offer you a piece of advice. And that is that if any of you are speakers, if you have an opportunity to speak, and you want to stretch yourself, Agree to do a talk called Learning How to Love Well. <laughs> so, it's a challenging subject. At least it is for me. And um, I, I will admit that I, I wanted to do this talk. I wanted to do it for a long time. And, I, and so I took the step of you know, setting that title off to Common Ground and immediately thought, what did you just do? <laughs> you know how it is once you send an email. I thought, well, 
for a few days, I thought I still maybe have time. They have, if they haven't posted it yet, I can still take it back and talk about something that's a little, you know, more intellectual or something. I can get my mind around. I can't get my mind around this subject. So I am going to speak as much as I can just from the heart. I'm going to tell some stories. I'm going to read some poems. So the only way I know how to talk about this subject. Now, this is not really about romantic love. But I am going to start with some lines from a romantic comedy. So <clears throat> if any of you have seen this movie, Love Actually, it's a great movie. And it's you know got Hugh Grant in it, who has this beautiful British accent. And he reads the, these lines that I'll read to you um, at the start of the movie. Um, and as he's reading it, you don't see him, but you hear his voice, and then you see this scene in an airport. And you see all these people greeting each other and hugging and, you know, loving. So I thought about reading this with the accent. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love to do accents at home. <laughs> but I've got two boys who have trained me out of this. <laughs> they say, Dad, you only have one accent. Whatever accent I'm trying to do, it all sounds the same. All you do is talk louder. <laughs> it doesn't work. Just stop. So I'm not going to do that. You can imagine it, though. So these are the opening lines. General opinion is starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers on 9-11, as far as I know, None of the calls from people on board were messages of hate and revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling that love actually is all around. I love that concept that love actually is all around and you have to look for it. There's a that's, that's the trick. You have to be able to see it to perceive it. But I have come, I really have come to believe that it's true. And if that's true, why don't we feel it? Why don't we realize that we're immersed in it? Pema Chodron, who many of you know, many of you probably read her work, she has a way of explaining this that makes a lot of sense to me. And she uses a metaphor of a sea anemone. So a sea anemone is kind of like a combination plant, combination animal. It sits at the bottom of the ocean, but it's kind of planted there. It doesn't really move. And so to, to get its nourishment, it has these tentacles that come out of the soft opening. It looks kind of like a mouth. These tentacles are just floating around. And the nourishment just comes by. It's just floats past and it draws it in from all around. And I 
That's how I imagine this concept that love actually is all around. And it's there nourishing us if we have the capacity to draw it in. But she goes on to say that, you know, the sea anemone, when it is threatened, it shuts down. It closes this opening. It brings its tentacles in. It closes up and tries to protect itself. And she says, we do this too. We do this with our own hearts. But the problem is that unlike the anemone, we may not open it up again. We may forget how. We may have been threatened so greatly or so often that we are scared to. We may not even realize that we've closed down. Um, but it takes an act. It takes, it takes practice. It takes uh, knowing that we need to cultivate this to be able to open it up again. So some of you, or many of you perhaps, know of some research that was done a long time ago now, several years ago, um, where someone got the idea, it was a great idea, to interview people on their, on their deathbed. <clears throat> so they're interviewing people as they're dying, asking them you know, to reflect back on their lives. And what they found, no surprise really, that nobody, nobody said, I wish I had earned more money. Nobody said, I wish I had worked more or worked harder. They all said in one way or another, I wish I had loved better. I wish I'd spent more time with the people that I really care about. Hafiz says it this way, love is the great work, but every heart is first an apprentice. Love is the great work, but every heart is first an apprentice. So what I hope to do this evening is to talk about what I consider to be five really important lessons that every apprentice needs to know. And this is coming from one apprentice to others. Uh, so we're always working at this. We're always learning this um, by practicing, by being conscious of it. So I'm going to go through the, these kind of one at a time, and I'm going to talk about them really through stories. So the first <coughs> story I want to share with you is a, a teaching story, really. It's about a man named Mula Nasruddin, who some of you have heard about. don't know if he was a real character, but many of the stories about him are, are so outrageous that if he was a real character, it's clear that they were they're still they, they were uh, expanded upon. But he's kind of like a wise fool. He's somebody who um, does silly things that the rest of us can learn from. So in this story, Mullah Nasruddin was planting a garden and learning to become a gardener. I'm a gardener myself. I can very much relate to this story. So he ran into a problem, like a lot of gardeners do. 
he had a lot of dandelions growing in his garden. And he did not want dandelions. He was trying to grow something else. So he started off by asking his neighbors who were gardeners, what do you do about dandelions? How do you get rid of them? And they told him, you know, this or that. They gave him some techniques, and he did them. But they just kept growing and kept growing. And then he went to the regional expert, the extension service of the Times, and um, asked them, you know, I really need help. I've tried these simple things that everybody knows. It didn't work. I need something stronger, something that works better. So they gave him some remedies. They sent him back. He tried them, and of course, they didn't work. And so he took it to the top. In this kingdom, there was a, you know, a master gardener who tended the, the kings and queens' gardens and was widely accepted as you know, the greatest expert in all the land on gardening. So he went to him and told him his story, told him the things he'd tried and his plight with the dandelions. And the master gardener says, well, this is what you need to do. And he gave him this kind of ex extended prescription for how to get rid of dandelions. So Mullah Nasruddin goes back home, and he does everything to the letter. And it didn't work. The dandelions are still there. And by this time, he's getting angry. So he goes back to the, you know, the master gardener, and he lets him have it. You know, He says, look, you told me to do these things, and it did not work. So the master gardener is kind of listening, taking this in, stroking his long beard. And he, after reflecting for a while, he says, there's only one thing you can do. You have to learn to love the dandelions. Now, to me, this is a story about what we do with ourselves, that we are constantly trying to weed out the things that are wrong with us, the things that we don't like about ourselves. It's called self-improvement. I know this one very well, because I've worked at it for a long time, decades. Really. And the only reason I'm not still doing it is because, it, in the end, it just didn't work. It just wasn't effective. And um, I'm still working on this one, but what I think this story is telling us, the answer to this, is to really accept ourselves, genuinely, deeply accept ourselves as we are, weeds and all, warts and all. Now, this is not an easy thing to do. In my experience and the experience of the people I work with, it just, it's not as easy as it sounds. And yet, it is a really, really worthy goal. And I think that this, this first lesson for, uh, for those of us who are apprentices is that we have to first learn to love ourselves. We have to do that first. So I want to tell you a story about a, a 
woman who I saw as a, as a client and tell you a little bit about our first encounter where um, this just became so apparent to me, this need to, to really love ourselves first. So this was a woman whose story was really, in some ways, not so different from a lot of stories that I hear. It really wasn't that, that unusual. But there was something about this encounter that really stood out for me. I'm not exactly sure why. I'll try to explain it. But, but it really just struck me. But her story was that now at the age of 42, she had lived with incapacitating anxiety for most of her life. It really started when she was a teenager. And she had you know, some ups and downs, some reprieves at, from time to time, but it never really left her entire life. And she, like a lot of people, had tried everything. She had tried psychotherapy, years of it, had tried too many medications to count. Um, she had tried a lot of good self-care. Um, nothing had really, really given her relief. And she's you know, really kind of immersed in her story as we're talking, in part because we have a lot of time. We have well over an hour. I think I spent an hour and a half with her. and. Um, and she very seldom had had an opportunity like that to, to have that much time to kind of tease out her story. So she did, and, and it, could, it was clear that it was really important for her to do this. It was really, really um, touching something deep in her. And then at the end of this, her way of kind of summarizing after Kind of laying all this out, she said, I am more than this. My life is more than this. And that's what struck me. It wasn't just the words. It was the way that she said those words. She was crying. I was very close to crying. Um, but she said them in a way that there was clearly some grieving on her part. This was painful. There was a huge sense of loss of all the ways that this had affected her life. But at the same time, there was defiance there. She was unbroken. I don't think she realized that, however. But she was. I could see that. So for her, this first lesson of the heart is crucial. She needs to be able to see this. She needs to be able to see and own and kind of live from this place that she has more strength than she realizes. There is more right with her than she realizes. I want to read you a poem. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard this of uh, this poet. His name is Derek Walcott. Incredible poet. This is called Love After Love. 
the time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you. All your life whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart, take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Sit, feast on your life. Now the second of these lessons is something else that that this woman taught me or reminded me of. And that is, after learning to love ourselves first, we need to also learn to see the innocence and the goodness in others, both their innocence and their goodness. Now, I think that what made this my, my encounter with this woman as powerful as it was for me was that I was able to see this. I was able to see her strength and goodness in a moment even when, when she couldn't. Now, that is not something I'm always able to do, I'm not always that present or that open. For some reason, I was at that moment. But it's something I practice doing. It's something I'm conscious of, and I keep working at, and I keep intending to be able to see that inside another. Now, the remarkable thing about this this woman and this encounter was, was not just what happened in that moment, but what kind of kept happening for me over the next hours and a couple of days. I It opened me up in a way that stayed with me. And as so often happens when you're open like this, there was a poem that I encountered the very next day that just resonated with me so much in regards to this woman. So I want to read this to you. And to me, this was a, just a very powerful encounter, both with her and with the poem. This is a, a poem by Rumi, and it's called, Can't You See the Mighty Warrior? How often you ask, what is my path? What is my cure? He has made you a seeker of unity. Isn't that enough? All your sorrow exists for one reason, that you may end sorrow forever. The desire to know your own soul will end all other desires. 
the smell of bread has reached you. If that aroma fills you with delight, what need is there for bread? If you have fallen in love, that love is proof enough. If you have not fallen in love, what good is all your proof? Can't you see? If you are not the king, what meaning is there in a kingly entourage? If the beautiful one is not inside you, what is that light hidden under your cloak? From a distance you tremble with fear. Can't you see the mighty warrior standing ready in your heart? The fire of his eyes has burned away every veil. So why do you remain behind the curtain, scared of what you cannot see? Open your eyes. The beloved is staring you right in the face. If a master has not placed his light in your heart, what joy can you find in this world? Every flower is lifeless, and sweet wine has no taste. So this woman, she, she is learning to love herself. She is consciously, intentionally working with that. She's working at reclaiming more of her life. She's learning to love well. The third of these lessons is also part of that story. And that is that we all need to learn to listen deeply, to really be present, to be able to um, hold another in such a way that both they and us can see this mighty warrior. Emma Chodron um, has a quote that I just love, and I just recently come across this. She says, how did I get so lucky to have my heart awakened to others and their suffering? Let me read that again. How did I get so lucky to have my heart awakened to others and their suffering? So in the kind of work that I do, in being frequently present to others and their suffering, it is, uh, it is not easy, especially at first, when one is first kind of learning and practicing and cultivating this skill. It's, it's hard to be with so much suffering, and there is so much in the world and so much in each of us it is not easy. Um, and yet, I would say that for me, it's, it's been one of the great gifts of my life to be able to become better and better, more and more able to be with others in this way. And after a while, with, with time and, and practice and maybe getting more grounded and loving myself better, it, it no longer feels burdensome. It feels like she's saying, like an awakening, like it's opening. It opens me. And I found anything that opens me 
is something I am drawn to, something I'm grateful for. So I uh, had a, another encounter with someone, a woman who came up to me after a talk that I gave. She wasn't a client of mine, but she came up to me after a talk. And she said, <clears throat> I want to thank you. I was actually talking about my second book. It was right after that book had come out. But she said, I want to thank you for your first book. And I want to share my story. So she says that uh, two years before that, her four-year-old daughter had died. She said, we knew our daughter was going to die when she was born because she had a congenital illness that was you know, so terrible that they, they didn't expect her even to live for four years, but she did. And when she died, I was just devastated. I was um, so depressed, and she had never been depressed before. Um, I could not get out of it, and I stayed this way for two years. I couldn't function. She went on to say that um, this girl had never been able to speak because of her illness. She had never been able to really communicate in any way that children normally do. And yet, her presence was such an important part of her and, and their family's life. And when she was gone, it was just this huge gaping hole. And she said, some friends became concerned about me. And they actually gave me your book to read. And in the reading of it, she said, I was able to reconnect with the joy that was my daughter's life. But it wasn't just the sense of sadness and this, this gaping hole, but there was also this uh, great sense of gratitude that she was with us for four years. So she says, no, it's not like I don't miss her or don't grieve for her, but I can carry that loss and sadness in one hand, and in the other hand, I'm able to carry a sense of gratitude and, and joy that she was part of my life as long as she was. To me, that's a really authentic experience of joy. That's a really good description of what that means, because it doesn't necessarily mean that we're always happy. So this woman, I think, is embracing her life in all of its complexity and struggle. And to me, she illustrates this, the, the fourth of these lessons, which is to learn to be vulnerable and permeable. I had another kind of reminder of that um, just a very few weeks ago. I'm sure you all heard about this uh, horrible shooting that occurred in a local business here in the Twin Cities, and several of the workers were killed, and the owner of the business was killed. So the day after this happened, I got a phone call. It was from a good friend of mine. His name is David, but he called me on a Saturday. I didn't expect him to call on a Saturday, so I 
answer the phone all you know jolly and, and uh, said some kind of joke to him and it was very clear that you know that when his when he first spoke that um, he was calling for some other really deeper reason and so he just said you know Henry I am in so much pain right now because one of my dear friends was the owner of this business who was killed and I am just calling you know some of the people that I you know care about the most of it I think care about me that I want to hold me in this time I want you to, to be you know, praying for me and thinking about about me and this, this family and it just touched me so that he had this sense enough of, of being able and, and willing to be vulnerable to let this in but also to kind of use that as a stimulus to reach out to do something to really connect with some people that he cared about it was very touching and um, I haven't experienced that often particularly from men you know and it was just really I thought such a great example of somebody who lives in their heart enough that they're uh, able to, to not only kind of hold the pain but but to not sit with it by themselves and to to take some measures to connect with people that you think are, are, are able to hold this with you I thought that was just just beautiful Now this friend David also I've talked with him you know, several times since that incident and he is really kind of using this as as an awakening he's using this to to really kind of reflect on what is most important to him who is most important what does he really want the rest of his life to be about he's really taking it seriously this is a poem by Stephen Levine. It's called Half-Life. We walk through half our life as if it were a fever dream, barely touching the ground, our eyes half open, our heart half closed. Not half knowing who we are, we watch the ghost of us drift from room to room through friends and lovers never quite as real as advertised not saying half we mean or meaning half we say we dream ourselves from birth to birth seeking some true self until the fever breaks and the heart cannot abide a moment longer as the rest of us awakens summoned from the dream not half caring for anything but love that's how I see my my friend he's he's awakening from just dream life now many of us have experienced something like this some kind of awakening sometimes it's through suffering sometimes it's through wonderful things happening and we all know if we've experienced that that there's a tendency for us to fall back to sleep we need these reminders we need to um, 
have these encounters from time to time, but we need to be watching for them. We need to be kind of um, open and ready and vigilant so that when something comes along that wakes us from our half-life, we can see it. So, learning to be vulnerable and permeable. And then the last of these five is to learn to create a house of belonging. To create a house of belonging, to create a sense that you're connected, that you're you're really part of something else, bigger than yourself. I want to tell you about a an experience I had this summer that is just it's very literally doing this, creating a house of belonging. Now that phrase, house of belonging, comes from a, a poem by David White, which I'm not going to read tonight, but it's a beautiful poem. But um, my experience this summer, I had two weeks <clears throat> on the North Shore at the North House Folk School. don't know how many of you have been there, but it's in Grand Marais. It's this great place where you learn a bunch of, you can learn any number of old crafts. And um, the, the craft that we were doing was to build your own timber frame structure. So I don't know if you know what a timber frame is, but it's it's kind of like an Amish barn raising kind of an experience. So just some background. Um, five years ago, when my oldest son graduated from high school, he and I went to this folk school and did the same class, just the two of us. And we built a little timber frame structure that sits in my backyard as a tea house. It's just a small... Thing, but it's beautiful, and it's just this, um, you know, these, these the, the timbers, it's a post and beam, so it's just got these upright posts and then beams that connect, and then there's just this beautiful, it's almost like, like Japanese joinery, where you don't use any tools or anything, they just fit together without, you know, um, without any nails or screws or anything. So you, you use, you know, chisels and hammers and some power equipment, which my son loved, but anyway, we did this five years ago, and it was wonderful. It was a great bonding experience for he and I. But I, I, I got the idea planted in my head that having done that little thing, I knew I could do something bigger. And so um, this kind of early part of the summer, we, we decided, my wife and I, we were going to build a cabin. And we are going to do it ourselves and invite some friends to come. And we had, you know, 12 days with this instructor, 12 days to do this project. And it's a lot of work. There's <laughs> a lot of timbers. It's a tremendous amount of, of work and time. And we thought, you know, if we don't get it finished in these 12 days with some friends helping, it's going to be on me to, to go up there by myself and get this done. And I just knew I wasn't going to be able to do that. So we were just really, really hoping we would get enough people to come. So um, we kind of spread the word around a little bit. Um, my wife talked to some people that she knew, just barely knew, but she told them you know, what we were doing. And uh, the long and short of it is we ended up with 50 people. <laughs> we had 
plenty of work done, plenty of help. We got it done early. We were able to add some extra uh, extra pieces that we weren't planning on. Um, so, so part of it was that my my sense about this is that people are just hungry for community. That you know, when the opportunity kind of presents itself, people just jumped at it. Even people who really did not know us, I, people I hadn't ever met before. In fact, we had some people wandering through, you know, tourists who wanted to help. And, uh, not kidding. And it was really fun. It was one of the high points of my life, really, I, I, at least in, in the, the community kind of sense, um, where we were working together on a project. Everybody participated. Everybody had a, you know, a role and in in something uh, meaningful to do, something that felt good to them. And then in the evenings, we'd have you know, potlucks and you know, have a couple of beers and go get ice cream. And you know, it was just wonderful. Just wonderful, but it was really the thing that was so wonderful about it was this um, kind of instant creation of community, including people that some of us had never met before. It was beautiful. So I'm going to um, read you a story about this that I think is just. Such a beautiful and uplifting story. It's written by a poet, but it's really written as a story. The woman's name is Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Wandering Around in Albuquerque Airport Terminal. After learning my flight was de detained four hours, I heard the announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor, wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person, talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be four hours late, and she did this. I put my arm around her and spoke to her haltingly. Shodawa, Shubidak, Habibti, Stani Stani Shwey, Min Fadlik, Shobit Suwi. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought our flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for some major medical treatment the following day. I said, no, no, we're fine. You'll get there, just late. Who is picking you up? Let's call him and tell him. We called her son, and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her, southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. <laughs> then we called my dad. And he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. <laughs> then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? <laughs> this all took up about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then. 
telling about her life, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the traveler from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar (laughs) and smiling. There is no better cookies. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic, and the two little girls for our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade, and they were covered with powdered sugar, too. (laughs) And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves, such an old country traveling tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in. The shared world. Not a single person in this gate once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So one last poem, another uh, poem by Stephen Levine. It's titled, If Prayer Would Do It. If prayer would do it, I'd pray. If reading esteemed thinkers would do it, I'd be halfway through the patriarchs. If discourse would do it, I'd be sitting with His Holiness every moment He was free. If contemplation would do it, I'd have translated the periodic table to hermit poems, converting matter to spirit. If even fighting would do it, I'd already be a black belt. If anything other than love could do it, I've done it already and left the hardest for last. In the end, there's really no other game in town. There isn't anything else that is really that important. There are two things that I think can transform even something like depression and that can transform the person from 
having to really, really focus on self-care and, and doing everything to, to take care of their health into really living so fully and vitally that there's not as much room for something like depression or anxiety to even find its way in. The first of those two is, is to really learn genuine, deep self-acceptance. And the second is to cultivate this ability to connect, to really um, be able to have meaningful, deep connections with yourself, with others in your life, with some sense of community or tribe, with something of meaning that's beyond yourself. Those are the things that transform us from you know, these kind of small individual beings running around taking care of ourselves into being part of something so much larger that the suffering, whatever that is for us, is not as great. It's not as powerful because we have so much more. We're something so much bigger, like my patient said. We are more than this. Our lives are more than this. So I thank you for being here, for being open, for um, allowing yourself to be touched, to be drawn to this kind of, of work. And I would be happy to take um, a few minutes of questions or comments. Yes. Her name, just a second, it's Naomi Shihab, and that's S-H-I-H-A-B, last name is Nye, N-Y-E. Thank you for saying that. And I, I, I agree that sometimes I think it is very hard to see. It's very hard to see these things. It's really one of the reasons why I, I find uh, poetry helps to pierce through that. 
and stories, of course, help to pierce through it because you know we all have this veil um, that makes it harder for us to see kind of beneath the surface of things. And on the surface, things often don't look very good. But um, that, I think, is the, the, the trick and the challenge, is to, to continually kind of cleanse our perceptions so that we can really tap into something beneath all of that. And to, to yeah, there is a matter of, of faith, I guess, that, um, that we believe that it's still true, that it's even when we cannot see it. So thank you. Just to go back to the veil that you mentioned, that you, you say we are all wearing, and I, I tend to agree. Uh, why do you think the default in our way of being is, is that sort of underlying symbolism? Yeah. I mean, I know when I can get out from under, it's the best feeling ever. So. Yeah. The question is why? Why? Why do we have this sort of default to? to put this veil around ourselves or to carry a sense of, of cynicism or whatever. Um, I don't really know, but I, what I believe about that is that um, at every moment, every one of us is doing the best that we can. And that includes the way that we try to take care of ourselves or protect ourselves. And I think that that even though it, you know, it, it ends up hurting us, I think that the veil um, seems in that moment to be protective. Does that make sense? saying this, but what I want to say about that is that I don't think we have to eliminate the fear. I don't think we have to, to get rid of it in order to, you know, to live in this way. Um, I, I, like the, the woman I described who, whose problem was, was really fear, anxiety, and the way that it had, had trapped her and affected her life so much. And, you know, she, she, that's part of it. But the other part of it for her was that she has incredible courage to be able to keep keep going, keep facing all of this, to be able to keep you know working on, on that. She hadn't given up entirely. And um, you know, I think this is maybe just my being naive, but I think that both of those exist in all of us, and and really the. The thing that determines you know, which direction do we do we end up going is which of those are we focusing on the most? Which one are we feeding the most? And um, you don't have to you know eliminate 
the, the fear or the pain or whatever it is. You can also just really, really try to stoke up and feed that more courageous part of ourselves. Yes? Yeah, so this is a really hard question. <laughs> what, what do I mean by love? I appreciate the question. This is a really hard one. Um, so what I, I think that it is so many different things. And it, it, of course, it includes romantic love and intimacy and, and all of that. Um, but what I'm talking about, or trying to kind of point myself toward is it, it is really the capacity to be completely present. It, it's being able to be um, present and without judgment to oneself, to the person that we or we can see innocently and see their goodness, um, to be able to listen really, really deeply. And that's all about presence. Um, so, you know, that I, I believe when we when we settle into that kind of, of deep, open state of presence, that there is really no other way to respond other than to to be loving and kind, kindness. Yes. As I hear about love, I think about how I my experience from you is that you demonstrated. And about six years ago, after my wife died, he called me. And our past don't circle much. And when he called me and expressed your kindness, and I felt like I mattered. So I think love is about presence, but it's also the feeling that you matter, that you know. Yeah. It also felt like my wife mattered and that she called me. So that meant a lot. Yeah. So I think you, when you're talking about this, you also live it, Henry. Thank you. So, if you couldn't hear that, maybe I should. <laughs> 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 okay. I guess you got it. Huh? <laughs> yes. That's a, that is hard. That's a hard thing for you. It's a hard thing for your the person you're connected with, and it's it's really hard to give a any really clear answer about that. But I, let me share a, a a story with you. Some of you know about Parker Palmer. He's a writer, very very well well known, gifted writer, and a great speaker. And he's also very very openly um, experienced three severe major depressions in his life, in which he gave up and, uh, you know, could barely move. He was immobilized by it. But one of the, the stories he tells about really being at the, at the worst, in the worst place of that depression, um, he had a number of people come to visit. 
who were, were trying really hard to help, but they were making, trying to fix them, kind of, trying, making suggestions, you know. It's a beautiful day outside. Uh, why don't you come out and enjoy it, you know. You need to move a little bit, and, you know. You have so much to be grateful for. You're such a gifted writer, that kind of thing. And, of course, it, it didn't do yeah, much of any good. I said every one of those. How do they work for you? <laughs> so here's what um, what did work for him. He's a Parker's a Quaker, and he had a friend who was a Quaker, who would come to visit him frequently, but didn't really didn't say anything. He would just sit with him, and there were times where he would hold or even rub his feet. But that was it. He would just be there. And, and you know, in, I don't think Parker could, could have said anything at the time. But later, after he came out of it, he, he said, you know, that's really, that was my lifeline. That's what kept me connected to this earth. And, um, you know, he was incredibly grateful for that. But he didn't really try to do anything. He was just there. But he was really there. So maybe, uh, yeah, just another one or two questions or comments. I'm very simple. I'm a very sociable little dog. Everybody loves her. Everybody does love her. (laughs) Today, because we're down at the river and she likes to run around and greet everybody, the joy that gets expressed in response, this is amazing, so I agree that love's all around. Yes, and that is, a, you know, having a, a, a pet that believes everybody loves them and that gives nothing but love out. What a great way to, to stay connect, stay grounded and connected to it. I wish I was like that, too. <laughs> what kind of a dog is it? Maybe there's a self-help book. <laughs> Well, tell me how to become like that dog. <laughs> yes. It's hard to, hard to say, but well, last winter I had a really bad episode of depression. The only thing that kept me really in the place that, I, that I'm still here today is my love for my partner and realizing what that love was for, was about. The hardest thing, though, that I don't understand, I really feel a sense of love with people, a real connectedness with people. How is it that you can do that for yourself, though? Isn't that, mm. don't, don't you find that more difficult? I love, I feel connected. I, I, I that's connected. a great question. And I think you've kind of put your finger on the problem that so many of us have, which is just that, that we can do this with other people, but we cannot somehow treat ourselves with that same degree of openness and kindness. And it, it really is the, such a great tragedy, I think. And I don't know why it is. I don't know what's caused it. I don't believe that it's how we were meant to be. I don't believe it's how human beings have always lived. And I don't think every culture has this. But, but I think that this um, disconnection from the self and, um, and you know, even to the point of, of self-derision is r- rampant. And it's really what I think keeps us from living in the kind of way I'm talking about, living that vitally and that fully. So, you know, if, if that's still a challenge for any of us, 
that's a great place to start, is to, to keep working at opening to yourself and, and um, holding yourself with the same degree of, of kindness or compassion that you would with, with someone else that you loved. It's not an easy thing to do, but it is a really, really transformative thing to do. You know, we say that we have to love ourselves first, and I think that's true. But also, when we're doing something like you're talking about, when like sometimes when I'm in my office with my client, there's that flash of presence that we're both there. I learn about myself because they love me. Yes. I think that they're learning about themselves because I love them. But I learn about me from them. Yes, that's that's a great a great point. Um, we we can't stop at loving ourselves. <laughs> we have, there's so much that happens. And I love um, myself more. They love. Absolutely. Me. Yes. There's. <laughs> right. Get a get a get a job. <laughs> but there's there's something that happens um, when when two people are able to really connect in that deep way that is inexplicable and, and you, that you cannot experience when you're alone, I don't think. It's a very, it's a different thing. And I, and I appreciate how you framed it that, it, it, that also helps you love yourself in a deeper way. Yes. Um, so, um, That's that's a great question. You know, if um, if you if you have some sort of health habit, for example, you're doing something that you know is hurting your health, maybe affecting your mood. Self-acceptance does not mean that you just let it go, that you keep doing that. But um, to me, the, 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 what self-acceptance really means is that you don't judge yourself. You drop the judging, the, critic, the criticism, the piling it on that we all tend to do. But you really do see things clearly still. You know, you see that there are things that you'd like to do differently or prove about yourself. There's a, a, a quote that kind of puts this very, very succinctly. This um, this teacher who had, you know, had a, lived with a community of, of students and was getting kind of, uh, he preached self-acceptance and he was getting kind of fed up with them because of the way they were acting. And so he says to them, you are perfect as you are, and you could stand a little improvement. <laughs> and one more question, and then we'll, I think we need to, to bring it to a close. But go ahead. Which one of your books came first? Uh, the, which book came first? It was The Chemistry of Joy. And The Chemistry, yes. Joy came first, calm, calm came later. <laughs> well, um, I think we need... You had your hand up for a long time. Go ahead. In your book, you do talk about body physical chemistry yeah. and uh, ways that we can eat and ways that we can take care of ourselves physically that make a difference. Could you say a little bit more about the connection between, say, serotonin and the 
the mental chemistry and that relation to our mental health and well-being. Let me let me uh, let me talk about this by sharing with you a study that that really is a study about brain neuroplasticity the brain being able to, to change and, and, and create new brain cells and new connections, to create a healthier brain. There are six things that we know of that, that improve this process of creating healthier connections and, and new brain cells, which, which, which influence mood. And one of those is serotonin. Serotonin, you know, the brain chemical, if it's present, in greater amounts, your brain is better able to make these connections and kind of repair itself, if you will. So serotonin is terribly important for that. The other factors are age. You know, as we age, we don't do, the, do all this quite as well, but it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop really until we die. Our brains are constantly recreating themselves until the last breath we take. Um, so serotonin levels, age, exercise, Diet, all of those have a huge impact on this process. Um, learning new things, kind of stretching oneself. Um, it's called an, having an enriched environment. And then the final of those is connection. And they've been able to study all six of these things with lab animals. You know, they're manipulating all these different factors. And guess which is the most important? It's connection. So you can literally have... A, a, a group of old rats that get to hang out together. <laughs> and that's all they do. And then the youngsters who are, you know, exercising and eating really well and doing everything else, and the old rats' brains are doing better. So, you know, this it is interesting how it relates, even at a very biological level, that, you know, connection is not everything, but it's... It can, you can cover a lot of other things by having a really, really open heart and, and a connected life. You know, I think people, in terms of mood and happiness, it, it does a lot of good for your serotonin levels. Well, thank you all so much. Thanks, Henry. This old rat was really... Glad to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks everyone for coming.